Thanks, Tom. My name's Andrew. People call me Hazy. It's my privilege to be looking at that fantastic passage with you. Although after uh, Daryl and Mary and Tamara just then, I wonder uh, if I really need to get up and preach. They said such helpful things. But um, I think there's still treasures yet in this passage. So how about we pray and we'll have a look. Heavenly Father, I pray please that your word would do what I can't. Bring even new life. Change hearts. Strengthen faith, grant repentance, and above all, Lord, use your words to hold on to us through your Son, Jesus, the Great Shepherd. Amen. Well, better is the end of a thing than its beginning, so says the Bible in Ecclesiastes. Now, um, maybe it's just me, call it ADHD if you like, but I find that difficult. I love to start new things, um, a new show, a new book, a new hobby, go to Bunnings, buy paint to start a new project, then run out of energy, lose interest... A week later, I'm back at Bunnings, buying some new things for a new project. Is anyone like that? Basically, what this means is my, me- my house is just a mess of half-started, half-finished projects. So maybe it's true. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. It's true in marriage, isn't it? The true glory is not the wedding and the honeymoon, though hopefully they're beautiful as well. But more important is whether you're still keeping those promises until death do us part. And it's true in life. More important than how you set out is finishing well. When you're young, naturally, you focus on the things that are towards the beginning of your life, the next five years. It's pretty hard to imagine anything past that. But what about your last years? Now, you don't know when they'll be. Some of us, it could be us right now. But for most people, one day, let me get a little depressing, your body will be too sore to do any of the hobbies that you now enjoy. You'll be too frail to do the job that once gave you so much purpose. Your loved ones will slowly pass away one by one. You'll feel sick and tired all the time. But you know, you actually won't get better. It just gets worse from here. The good times of your youth, they're not just in the past. They're actually getting kind of hard to remember. And yet you know that you could have 10, 15 more years to go. Now that person I've just described is as much you as the you right now. So I love the way Daryl said it. He wanted, was it at 85 to be his, his best years? How do you do that? How do you finish life well? Now if you make happiness your goal, then it's almost impossible. Because in those final years, it becomes harder and harder to find. But there are actually some who finish very differently. About 100 years after Jesus, there was an 86-year-old named Polycarp. Sounds a bit like a Pokemon, doesn't it? Now, he was arrested for being a Christian. The Roman authorities beat him. They led him into a stadium and threatened to burn him at the stake if he, wouldn't, if he, if he didn't deny Jesus. He's 86, and here's what he said. For 86 years I've served him and he's done me no injustice. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And so they burnt him alive. But he died a hero, didn't he? And he died with meaning and purpose. I'll tell you about someone else. The the person who wrote the song Rock of Ages, another fantastic name, Augustus Toplady. There's a man. Uh, He died from tuberculosis at the age of 37. 
not much older than I am. He never married, and he had a long battle with sickness. In fact, he spent the last three months of his life stuck in one room, knowing he would die. Yet, you know what he said? He said, those months were a period of constant joy because he spent them talking to Jesus. A few days before his death, this is what he said to his friend, my dear sir, it's impossible to describe how good God is to me. Since I've been sitting in this chair this afternoon, glory be to his name, I've enjoyed such a season of sweet communion with God. Such delightful manifestations of his presence and love to my soul that it's impossible for words or any language to express them. I have had peace and joy unutterable. I trust in him. I know I am safe and secure for his love and covenant is everlasting. That's how you finish life well. So what about you? How will you finish life? Outwardly, probably there will be tragedy. And yet despite all of that, it is possible to finish with hope and joy and even meaning. But how? Well, that's actually the main point of the whole book of Hebrews. As we come to the second last chapter, he ties it all together. And so keep chapter 12 open. You see in verse 1 there, Therefore, and at the end of the verse, he says, Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. He says, you've got to finish well. And he's going to tell us how to do it. You see, verses 1 and 2, in the original language, they're all one sentence. And there's actually one command in it. Run with perseverance. And the rest of those two verses is information on how to do that, how to run, things that help and things that hurt. So those are the three things we're going to see tonight. The need to run, things that help and things that hurt. So here's the first point. We need to keep running the race of the Christian life. That is how you finish life well. Now, that's very different to the way a lot of people think. Lots of people don't even realise there is a race. They say there's nothing after death, which means this life is the destination, which means the most important thing is to have a good time. But God's Word says in verse 1, that's not the situation. This life is like a race. Now, the Greek word there is agona. You're like, that sounds like agony. Correct, it does sound like agony. The word means a fight, a contest, a struggle, or it can mean a race, which is what it means here because it says we're to run. And we're to to run with perseverance. That means it's going to be a long race, a marathon, not a sprint, and so it will be a challenge to keep going. But we must not give up. Why? Because we've not yet reached the finish line. That is, the day that you die or Jesus returns... And then comes the destination, eternity in one of two places. Now, can you imagine getting to the airport? You've got flights booked, you've got your tickets to to Bali or Italy, you take your pick. But then you look at the queue and you look at the security checks. That doesn't look much fun. And so instead, you unload a 75-inch TV and you roll out some carpet. You set up some pot plants, give them a little water. You sign up for a fibre internet connection. And then you spend the afternoon screwing together some Ikea furniture. Two afternoons. Finally, you say, there we go. Now I can settle in and have a good time. That's crazy, isn't it? You're in transit. The point's not to get comfortable. I mean, sure, get as comfortable as you, you, you like. But the point's not to get comfortable. It's to get to the destination. 
That's how you finish life well. You don't get comfy here. You, you just keep moving through the queue, through the security checkpoints, past all the really expensive shops, all the way, kilometers away to the gate. And then you get to your destination. You run the race until you cross the finish line. Now, what's the race? It's not just life in general. It's the life of trusting and obeying Jesus. You see, let me show you. Look at verse 1. This is the conclusion to last week's passage. Therefore, all of the examples in, in, of faith in chapter 11. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. These examples that we, all, we saw last week bear witness to us that the life of faith is worth it. Look at the summary in chapter 11, verse 39, these all were commended for their faith. And so in chapter 12, verse 1, he turns to us and he says, what about you? Will you write your name in this list? Will you live the life of faith in Jesus? And so that's the race. Now, do you remember what we saw about faith last week? Cracker, if you, if you didn't catch it, podcast is a cracker. We saw that faith simply means trusting Jesus and his promises and that is what enables you to then live out costly obedience to Him. And it pleases God. And the result is that you are saved, eternal life forever in heaven for all who trust in Jesus. Now, it is fantastic to have lots of people around church checking out Jesus and the Bible. And so if that's you, one of the most important things to know is the way to be saved. It's not by being good enough the way to be saved is faith. It's to trust in Jesus. Chapter 10, verse 39 says, We do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. To become a Christian, you, you turn away from sin and your desires and you follow Jesus. And especially, you trust Him to save you. Not your goodness, but His death on the cross. And the moment you do that, you are saved. You have relationship with God. You, you will go to heaven. But there is an if. If you keep trusting and following Jesus to the very end of your life. That's what it means to run the race with perseverance. That is how you finish life well. And so come back to chapter 12 and look at the danger in verse 3. The danger is you could start out very well, but grow weary and lose heart. Now, that's a danger that's haunted the whole book of Hebrews all the way through. Look at them all on the slide. I'm not going to read them all. But look at the, the first one there. Right from chapter 2, he said, We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard, so that we don't drift away. Over and over again, look how seriously God's Word takes this danger. Now, there are some false teachings out there that actually undermine your commitment to keep going. Teachings like... Everyone is saved. Or it doesn't matter what you do, you can't lose your salvation, no matter how hard you try. Or maybe, maybe, who knows, everyone might repent at the end of their life anyway. Now, if those teachings were true, then these warnings make no sense. The whole book of Hebrews makes no sense. God's word in Hebrews is very clear. It matters desperately that you keep going. Because there is actually a fate that's worse than death. We saw it in chapter 10, verse 27. God has provided a sacrifice to take away sins. That's fantastic, isn't it? How good is that? God has provided a sacrifice that takes away sins. But if we say no, there's no other sacrifice. Chapter 10, verse 21. And so we suffer the punishment we deserve. Chapter 10, verse 31. And so, therefore, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, do you see? 
We need to keep running the race of the Christian life to the very end. And so let me apply this to us. First of all, to finish the race, you have to start the race. If you've, if you've not started to run, it's not too late today, but it will be too late one day. So don't sit around watching the race. Begin to run if you haven't. Put your trust in Jesus. Begin to obey Him out of faith. And can I say, I actually think one of the most miserable places of all is just on the edge of being a Christian. It's quite uncomfortable to sit on the fence. You see, you know enough to know that you're not living right and so you feel the guilt. And so you think, well, if this is what it's like to get close to becoming a Christian, then I never could actually do the real thing. But my friend, it's the exact opposite. You see, what happens is when you get off the fence and and jump in, you become a Christian, your guilt is replaced by joy because you know that your sins are forgiven and heaven is your home and God is your Father. You know what else happens? God Himself comes to live in you by His Spirit to give you a new power to change. In fact, He even begins to change your own desires. But if you're just sitting on the edge, you actually don't know what that's like. You're experiencing perhaps lots of the pain, without any of the gain. And so I think as hard as it is to live as a Christian, it is still far easier than living as an almost Christian. If that's you tonight, let me encourage you, jump in wholeheartedly. In fact, let Hebrews 12 encourage you, jump in wholeheartedly. And in my experience, you'll find peace and joy and power to change. And you'll find that it's actually a good race. You see verse 1, it's the race marked out for us. It's what our Heavenly Father has prepared for us. And so we'll see next week, it's, it's actually for our good. And so, brothers and sisters, run. In fact, let us run. Do you notice we do it together? And run with perseverance. Make it your goal to finish this race, to never give up. Nothing matters more for you than that. It matters more than your health, than your relationship status, than your finances than even your happiness in this life. But the way to run the race is not, and to finish it is not to see the importance and hope, oh, gee, I really hope I make it. You can see in verse 1, how do you finish the race? You run. You live as a Christian. You trust and obey Jesus. You can't be passive and run. The way to make sure you finish is to live as a Christian today and tomorrow, and never to stop. See, how do I know I'll I'll still love my wife in 10 years' time? I, I can't control 10 years' time. But I can love her today. And one day at a time, never stopping. That's how, by God's grace, I'll love her in 10 years, 50 years. There's the main instruction in this passage. To finish life well, you need to keep running to the end. But how do you make sure you do that? Well, this passage gives us the two keys. There are things that hurt and things that help. And so here's point number two. Get rid of anything that makes it harder. Kind of an obvious thing. It's kind of like saying, if you're hurting, stop punching yourself in the face. Apparently, we need to be told. Look at verse one again. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Imagine you line up for a marathon in spearfishing gear, you've got a wetsuit on, you've got a snorkel and a mask, you've got on your feet and a weight belt on. 
Well, you're not serious about finishing, are you? Because a marathon is hard enough. Has anyone here run a marathon? Pete, go on, tell us. Uh, there's someone, apparently, but he's shy. They're hard, apparently. Are they hard? It would have ruined my point if you'd said the other thing. <laughs> I haven't done one because they're hard. Now, they're hard enough. You'd be crazy to do it carrying any extra weight. But how much more when it comes to the Christian life, which is so much more important that you finish? It's crazy to allow anything in your life that makes it harder to finish, anything that makes it harder to trust Jesus or obey him. Now, did you notice it points out two types of things? What are they in verse 1? Well, first of all, there's the sin that so easily entangles, so sin. But then there's also this other category, other things that they're not sin, because that's that one, but they still hinder you. Let's go through them one at a time. Sin. See, I think sometimes we can wrongly think that sin is, is kind of like a little rest from following God, a little break from doing the right thing. No, says Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it does you damage in the race. It's like trying to stab yourself in the leg with a fork while you run. It just makes it, sin makes it much harder to run. In fact, look at verse 1, sin so easily entangles. Do you know temptation to sin always minimizes the long-term effects, doesn't it? But once it's got you one time, it'll be easier to get you the second time. And so sin grows and it becomes much, much harder to get rid of than you ever expected. It's like the, there's this viney weed outside my kitchen window that's strangling all the plants I'm trying to grow. What it does is it shoots out, when I'm not watching, it's very quick, it shoots out these long, thin tentacles that gently wrap themselves around the branches so gently it doesn't even move a single leaf. It just weaves its way in and the plant doesn't even notice. I don't even notice. In fact, I look out and I go, oh, there's lots of leaves on that. It's going well. But then very quickly, it forms a big tangled knot so that now you can't even pull it off without tearing all the leaves off the branch. But actually, if, you, if you've, you've left it too long and, you, and that's where it's at, even if it hurts the plant, you do have to do it. Well, I'm not a... Don't take my advice. Ask someone who works in this. But this is what I do. Like, even if it hurts the plant, you've got to do it because if you don't act quickly, you know what will happen? The next thing it does is it hardens like wood. And very soon the plant is dead unless you radically get in there and chop that vine everywhere you can find it. And brothers and sisters, Satan does not care whether he gets you quickly or slowly. Now, if he can, he'll get you quickly with what people so-called big sins, um, ones that tangle you in lots of carnage all at, one time, all at one moment. Suddenly your whole life is such a mess. And of course, there's forgiveness. And it is still possible to live as a Christian after that. It's just much, much more complicated, which makes it just that much more likely you'll tap out. So if Satan can get you that way, he will. Beware. But you know, he's just as happy to choose a more subtle approach. Let me give an example. Greed that no one sees. There's no sudden, spectacular fail. But rather, over time, bit by bit, Gradually, you replace all the dodgy things in your house with the nicer things that you see in the beautiful Instagram stories from furniture shops. Why are they always so beautiful? Maybe it's just me. And then you, you think, well, to, to keep affording this, I can't afford to lose my job. 
even though the hours are making it hard to have time to grow as a Christian and to serve, even though they're starting to ask me to do things that don't quite fit with what the Bible says. And it's becoming harder and harder to be generous and sacrificial. So now there's a disconnect between what I say I believe and yet what I do in practice. Your subconscious doesn't like that. It's called cognitive dissonance. And so what it does is it subtly goes to work solving the problem by finding more and more reasons why you don't really believe those things anymore. And so you'll call yourself a Christian, but you just won't take it as seriously anymore. And you'd never admit it, but the truth might be, might be that, that God has become no longer your God. Bit by bit, your God is now greed. Now you can write that story a million different ways, can't you? Pride, the need to be approved by others, the lustful wandering eye. See, pornography so easily entangles, doesn't it, both men and women. Now the stats are much more men than women, but actually it's very common for both now. I think one positive of the last, say, 10 years is there's less of a stigma for men to talk about it, which has helped some men to get on top of it. I do wonder if that needs to happen for women as well. It's, it's common for both, and, and like all sin, we're all sinners. Now, I'd love to spend more time on it, but I won't now. But that is a sin that, that really easily entangles, so fight it with everything you've got. But the point in chapter 12 is not that there's one particular sin that's so easily, so super dangerous, it's that all sin does this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says, Sin wages war against your soul. And so let me ask you, are you trying to throw off sin? Are there sins you've been tolerating? We can't afford to think, you know, oh, a little bit's okay. I'll avoid those ones, but I'll let these ones slide. No, if you're serious about finishing well, treat sin like mold or like termites. Get rid of every trace that you can find. You know, when's the easiest time to pull up a weed? The first time you see it. Easy done. If you let it grow, it gets hard, and sooner or later you have to get the shovel out. Now, the bad news is that this is what you'll be doing for the rest of your life. Notice even the author of Hebrews includes himself. Let us throw off everything and sin. He's still fighting sin too. But here's the good news. By God's grace, you will make progress. And that will be genuinely good. Next week's passage, chapter 12, verse 11, talks about a harvest of righteousness and peace. Your Christian life will become more and more enjoyable, more pleasing to God, more fruitful with every passing year. There's the first category of things that makes the race harder. But what about the other category in verse 1, everything that hinders? The word is literally weight. This is stuff that's not sinful, but it weighs you down as you run the race. And I think this verse is kind of like advocating minimalism for the Christian life. You know, the idea of minimalism is that you, you actually have more when you have less. You remove the clutter, you Marie Kondo it or whatever, and you make room for the things that really add value. If you want to finish life well, don't make it your goal to change the minimum you can and hopefully still slide into heaven. It makes sense to change as much as you can so you can run as well as you can. 
and be as useful of a servant of Jesus as you can. Now, let me give some examples. I reckon we could talk about almost anything here, couldn't we? Because it's not really about the thing itself, usually. It's usually about the impact it has on you, which means it can be different for each of us. For some people, it could be learning to set healthy boundaries and say no to people. But for other people, actually focusing too much on protecting yourself and your own mental health could be a blockage to you obeying Jesus' commands to love and serve others. You see, you need to know yourself. I'll tell you one thing for me, I could go on and on, but I'll just tell you one. Facebook Marketplace, an Oz bargain. There's nothing sinful about them, right? But I've wasted so much time basically trying to make my life more comfortable. And I think what it does is it damages my ability to be content and it makes me very focused on this world, my desires, rather than others and eternity. Other people I've talked to this week have said things like gaming, going to the gym, TV. Now the trouble is, what makes it hard, is these are good things, aren't they? There's nothing wrong with them. In fact, the Bible says everything created by God is good and to be received with thanksgiving. It's good to enjoy God's good gifts. They only become a problem when they become a problem. Now, let me, let me illustrate this. Good things are good when they're in their place, right? But then they become a hindrance if they start to hurt your walk with Jesus, if they make it harder for you to trust him or love him or grow more like him or serve others and love them. And then it can even become sinful if you then make them an idol. And so what do you do if a good thing is in the wrong place? Well, you just pull it back until it's in the proper place. And if you can do that, great. Enjoy God's good gifts. But sometimes, for you personally, you just struggle to keep it in its place. It's too enticing for you, and if that's you, then the best thing to do is just get rid of it altogether. Now, how do you work that out? Well, here's some questions I thought of that you can ask. There are probably others. Am I using this for a good purpose? Is it the best way to achieve that purpose? See, if I'm going to YouTube to rest, is it actually restful, or are there things that are actually more restful? Is it keeping me from my responsibilities towards other people or other important things? Are there negative side effects? Now, what do you think is the number one hindrance for us? Not sinful, just a hindrance. Shout something out. What you wish your best friend would deal with. No, don't, not that. Just what do you think, on average, is the number one hindrance? Really? Okay, wow, there you go. For some people, it can be. Yes. I heard social media and I heard phones. I think, I think this is it. There are now billion-dollar companies who, whose whole business is built on sucking your attention onto their app or their website. Now, there's even people are calling it limbic capitalism, using technology to take advantage of your brain systems, the limbic systems, your neurotransmitters, dopamine. I don't, I'm not, I don't know neurology, right? But is that even the word? Neurobiology. Um, but that what they do is they, they use technology to tap into the way your brain works to keep you using their technology, to make it addictive so they can keep selling you their, their ads or their product, right? And so that is why you find it so hard to stop scrolling or swiping. Social media, YouTube, TikTok, gaming, all of these things, they, in, they release incredible amounts of the brain chemicals, like dopamine, that were originally only released as a result of hard work. Now, I think 
we are starting to become more aware of its effects. For example, you probably know about its effect on mental health. It's not good. But have you considered its impact on your Christian life? Let me point out two very negative things that it, that it does to flood your brain with so much dopamine in these ways. Number one, it, it sucks up a lot of time. Strangely, we find ourselves very motivated to open that app. But how much time do we sink into these things? And how much do we have to show for it? But actually, I think the second effect is worse. It affects our ability to do anything that requires real effort. You know how this works? Your brain's reward system works out that it doesn't need to, to work hard to get its reward chemicals anymore, the dopamine fix. There's actually an easier way. And it destroys your capacity for hard work. Now, in life, pretty much anything that's worth anything, anything of real value, takes effort. And, and also in Christian life, so many of the best things take effort. Bible reading, prayer, deep thinking, self-reflection, investing in, in relationships and serving others. More and more, what happens is we, we lack the motivation for those sorts of things when our system is just flooded with dopamine from the sugar hit of, of those apps. Now, I think these things do hurt us, are hurting us spiritually, because I see it in myself. Just today, I was um, filling up petrol. I know you're not supposed to use your phone, but I don't think it's that dangerous. Now, convince me if I'm wrong. But there was a moment where I didn't have anything to do and I could have done so many things at that moment. Just, just enjoy the day would have been fine. Give glory to God for it. I could have thought about Jesus and fixed my eyes on him. I could have prayed. I could have, well, there weren't too many people to talk to, but often there are. But before I even realized it, my phone was in my hand and I was going to, I, I don't even know what website I was going to go to. Now, for me, on my phone, because I have had such a difficult time managing it, I don't have any social media apps at all. I don't have email, I don't have games, and I don't have the ability to install apps, and I can't go to any websites, except for a very short list that I've personally added, like um, the Service New South Wales website, so I can register my car, or whatever. And I don't know the code to change those things, my wife does, and so if there's a website I know I need to use, well, actually, I usually just go to my computer, but, you know, I can always put it on there if I need it, and I know it won't distract me. And it's the same on my iPad when it comes to my computer, um, I actually use two apps, that's how bad I am. I have one called Self-Control that does three-week-long blocks of, uh, of 200 websites that I find distracting. Wow, this is an insight, isn't it? And I have another app. I have another app called OneFocus that I use to do um, like smaller blocks where I really need to focus on something. Right? Turns out I have a diagnosis coming, right? But you might not need to do all that. That's what it looks like for me. But here's the crazy thing. Even with all that in place, if you ask Monique, she'd probably still say I have a problem. Why am I talking about all this? Because I think unless you see what it's doing to you and you realise how powerful it is to get you, you won't stand a chance because it's not a fair fight. You can't just go, oh, I'll try to use my phone less, it won't work. Your self-control is like a water pistol, they've got nuclear weapons. These companies, they don't have the same goals as you. They don't even have the same goals for when you open the app. They're not trying to improve your life, they're trying to steal it. And so if it's hindering you in the Christian life, put it in its proper place, and if you can't, go to war, get rid of it. You won't look back on your life and say, no, I missed some of those videos on TikTok. <laughs> you might look back and say, 
Gee, I wasted some of my best years. I could have been so much more like Jesus. I could have done so much more for him. And so, brothers and sisters, is there anything in your life that's making it harder to trust and obey Jesus? Any desire or habit? Any possessions? Any job or relationship? Do yourself a favour, throw it off, get rid of it. But even more than this moment now, I actually hope a deep conviction settles into you for the rest of your life that you will always approach everything in this way. Will this help or hurt my ability to run the race? Listen to me. If you make space in your life for things of true value, you will never regret it. Not when you're 85 and definitely not in eternity. Now, it's costly and hard, yes, but it's also good. Deep down, your heart wants more than just entertainment. But how do you keep going? Because it does sound tiring and hard, doesn't it? If we're going to keep going, we're going to need help. And thankfully, that's exactly what God has given us. So third and final point to finish. Look at Jesus for help. Check out verse 2. He goes on to say how you keep on persevering. By fixing our eyes on Jesus. There is the key above everything. Keep your focus on Jesus. Fix your eyes, nails, staples, screws, superglue, your attention onto Jesus. And so I'm going to finish by pointing your attention to him now as I show you what this passage says about how he helps us. Number one, he is an example to teach and motivate us. You see, he's run this race before us and he finished it well. Look at verse 2. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The cross was horrific, worse than anything you or I will ever face, but Jesus trusted and obeyed his Father to his final breath. And we learn from his example because do you see how he did it? For the joy set before him, that's what kept him going. What joy was it that awaited him on the other side of the cross? I'll give you three. Number one, there was the joy of seeing you saved. Remember Jesus' parables. There's rejoicing in heaven when the lost are found. The joy ahead of Jesus that kept him going was you. See how much he loves you. Ah, see how much he wanted to save us. But there's more. There was also the joy of being reunited with his father and exalted. See, at the end of verse 2, look where he is now. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He wins. What a joy for Jesus to be back with his father forever in the place of honor. That kept him going. And as well, I think, thirdly, there was the joy of glorifying God. What could the Son of God enjoy more than bringing glory to the Father he loves? That's how you keep going, isn't it? You keep your eyes on the prize. And so we learn from his example. Do you see the joy set before you? The joy of being saved and with him forever. In fact, the Bible says we will be glorified with Jesus and all of it will bring glory to the Father. And that's how you finish the race well. Jesus is our example to teach and motivate us. But not only that, when we set our eyes on him, secondly, it gives perspective. Look at Jesus in verse 2. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame. 
What do you know about this, the shame of the cross? The cross was the most shameful way a person could die. In fact, it was shameful even to talk about it. Jesus was hung up, probably naked, in a public place alongside the worst criminals and he was mocked and spat on. The shame. But how did Jesus view it? It says he scorned the shame. Do you know what that means? It means to treat it with contempt, to think little of it. It means nothing to me. Jesus took the shame of the cross and he shamed the shame. He flipped it upside down. He says, I don't care about it because he had perspective to see that actually what the world saw as shame was really his moment of glory. What seemed shameful in the world's eyes was actually heroic in God's eyes. That was the moment he showed us his love and he won us our salvation. And so when you look at Jesus, you get perspective. You see eternity, you see eternal joy ahead, and you see what's truly valuable now. You see, the world will say it's shameful to be a Christian, but you can shame the shame. You can say, that means nothing to me, because what the world calls shameful is precious to God. Looking to Jesus gives you the perspective to finish life well. But finally, Jesus is not just a good example. He doesn't just give perspective. He actually helps us run. He will hold you fast. Look at verse 2, where he's called the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Now, there's a lot packed into that. The word translated pioneer means the first one, the champion, the leader, and the founder. The founder. When it comes to both the faith, Christianity, and your individual faith in Him, He is the one who started it. He and the Father planned it. He died on the cross to make it possible for you to be saved. He sent the messengers, the messengers to bring the gospel to you. And then He was the one who opened your heart to give you faith. In every way you can imagine, Jesus is the founder of your faith and our faith. But do you know what? He finishes what he starts. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. Jesus didn't just start a Bunnings project and walk away. He gets the job done. Look at verse 2. He's the pioneer and perfecter of faith. And perfecter. That means that Jesus will make sure that it works. God's plan for salvation will happen. His death on the cross will save you. And if your faith is in Him, He will make sure you make it to the end. He will make you holy like He is. He will shepherd you every step of the way to make sure that your faith reaches its destination. Now, we think that we start the race by our choice and we finish it by our perseverance and that's true. Everything I've said tonight still matters. You do need to run the race. But do you know where your confidence actually comes from ultimately? It's that Jesus is helping you to do that every step of the way. If it was up to me, who knows if I'd make it. But Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of faith. He's the founder and the finisher. And so trust Him. He will hold you fast. And so if you want to finish life well, you need to keep running the race, get rid of everything that makes it harder, and to do that, you will need to look at your own life. But for every one look at yourself, 
take three more looks at Jesus. One look down, three looks up. Because if you focus on yourself, you'll get discouraged. If you focus on the world, you'll get distracted. If you focus on some pastor or Christian leader, you'll be disappointed. But if you focus on Jesus, you will find that he helps you all the way to the very end. Now, how do you fix your attention on Jesus? Oh, there's a million little ways, aren't there? I find it helpful to listen to um, playlists of good Christian music that remind me of truths. I've got on my um, shower screen at home verses pinned up on the the side that doesn't get wet. Um, Sometimes when I brush my teeth, I put a verse there. Um, On my lock screen on my phone, I've done that at times. It it really does help to read Christian books that expand your view of Jesus. In... um, in Prince Caspian, Narnia, Lucy comes and says, um, Aslan, you seem bigger now. And Aslan says, well, yes, that's because you're bigger. You know, Jesus will seem bigger to you. It'll be easier to fix your attention to him the more your understanding of him grows. Books like God's Big Picture will help you do that. But let me give you what I think are the really big ones to lock into place. I, I don't know when I made this decision, but some time ago, I made a decision that I would never miss church or growth group, particularly church, for anything. For anything. Now, if, I, if my wife was in labour, I'd make an exception. But oh, I'm really reluctant to make exceptions. I think being here helps you fix your eyes on Jesus. Pursue friendships with other solid Christians. I think that's probably number two. I was surprised as I reflected on this. I thought reading my Bible would be high, but I actually think having good, solid Christian friends helps even more, perhaps. But then a close third, read your Bible as often as you can. And number four, pray. But don't just pray about your needs. Pray the gospel. Do you know what I mean by that? Pray about your sin and about the cross and about the joy ahead of you. That'll help you take it down deep into your heart. In fact, let me do that now. Lord Jesus, you are magnificent. Thank you that you endured such opposition from sinners against yourself and endured the cross, scorning its shame for the joy set before you. We confess our sin and ask you to help us get rid of it. We confess our apathetic and cold hearts that so often hold on to things that aren't sinful but don't matter ultimately. Thank you that your death on the cross has brought us forgiveness and an eternity with you. Help us to keep running so that we might be with you there. In Jesus' name, amen.